From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast of the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. The surgeon and the rep will get on a call with an engineer and designer. Basically, it'll plan it out and Ultimately, the clinician is responsible for the plan, so they got to give it, you know, sign of approval, um, and then move it forward. Um, more and more now, we're seeing more point of care usage. That was Jeff Rupert. Jeff is a director with 3D Systems Application Innovation Group, or AIG, a team comprised of engineers, designers, and technicians that collaborate with the company's customers to architect bespoke additive manufacturing solutions and applications. Renowned for his expertise in process control, validation, and characterization using metal AM within the medical device and other critical application areas, Jeff has supported the manufacture of more than 2 million medical devices to date and more than 100 customer 510Ks and CE marks. He's a key contributor to regulatory organizations, providing guidance, which is helping to shape industry standards. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. Also, if you or anyone in your company are looking for materials, qualification, and other general added manufacturing support, reach out to the team through our website or via email at info at 3degreescompany.com. All right, Jeff, thanks so much for joining the show today. Uh, really excited for the conversation. And I always start with uh, everybody kind of get a sense of the person uh, and the start of their career. So where were you born? Um, what were some of those early days like in, in terms of finding what you were interested in and activities you were doing then? Yeah, so uh, I was, uh, I'm born and raised in Colorado, one of the rare and the few, um, and then went to college at CU Boulder. So um, most of my life has been in Colorado, lived in uh, Albuquerque for a couple of years when I was a wee toddler, but for, for all intents and purposes, Colorado born and bred, um, went to CU Boulder actually on like a pre-med track. I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, um, and then got pretty tired of school. Um, so, um, I actually, uh, the not so secret secret about me is that, uh, I faked my way into this whole engineering thing. My degree is actually in uh, molecular biology, um, and, uh, economics, uh, so two, two degrees, but, uh, neither of which is engineering. Um, as I was graduating college, I, um, I came out early. So I, I finished basically in uh, December of 08, a wonderful time to <laughs> hit the job market as a young professional. Um, and I had kind of gotten my way into, um, I, I knew I wanted to do something in, um, sort of biotech, med device, pharma. And I had an internship that I parlayed into a full-time thing um, at a pharmaceutical company doing quality assurance. Something that at the time, you know, between my junior and senior year of college, didn't really even know what quality engineering would be, but hey, they'd take me and they'd actually pay me to do an internship. So I was like, heck yeah, this is great. Let's do it. Um, and it ended up being pretty cool. Ironically enough, it actually took more um, of my economics schooling um, in that whole quality profession because all the statistical engineering um, than anything else. Um, so all the molecular biology and the biology stuff, even in pharma, really didn't touch. Um, that company ended up um, getting acquired um, and I was going to have to move to Chicago, no offense, Mike, um, or uh, New York. Uh, and, you know, I wanted to kind of wanted to stay in Colorado. 
um, be close to the the stuff that I like doing, normal Colorado stuff. Um, so I actually through the Regulatory Affairs Society of Colorado, I uh, I found a job at um, medical modeling uh, that I applied for, and kind of you know again you know dumb luck uh, getting into kind of the right things. It was uh, it was additive manufacturing, something I really didn't know about. I knew it existed, but it wasn't something I. And really it was the, like, hey, what's I'm the time frame of this? What what year are we talking about? This was about? in 2010 now okay. for uh okay. for medical modeling. So Andy Christensen had started that company in the 90s, um, taking you know, CT data, DICOM images, and then moving them through a digital process to produce anatomical models, and then that started becoming um, you know, surgical planning and whatnot. So I, I started there um, as I think it was between 15 and 20 employees at the time. It was really small, and I was the the quality engineer. Um, but we had these two uh, these two RCAM systems at the time. So like two of the really really early RCAMs, S12s, the gray machines. Um, some of the folks listening will probably know those and have mixed reactions to those. <laughs> but we're here together. Um, CalRAM had a couple um, at the time. ULA at uh, North Carolina State had one. Um, and then we had a couple for med device. Um, and so um, started doing SLA stuff mostly um, back then. Um, but plastics is too easy. Um, so then got into metal because it was, it was cool and there was a need there. Um, so that's really where it started, like sort of towards the end of 2010, started working yeah. in um, e-beam med device. And we got the first additively manufactured um, implant to market back then. At the time, FDA could barely spell ED, EBM. We really had a hard time spelling EBM too. It was a totally different ball game back then. Um, but with that, we, uh, you know, we we kind of continued to to grow that. And you know, there was a really strong titanium and ortho three D printed titanium and orthopedics was a really it just makes sense. You know, there's just a lot of, it just makes sense. Um, the trick to it was always that. So finding applications was easy, but the trick was always finding the right way to validate the process. Right. Cause both from the regulatory standpoint, and the OEM standpoint, there wasn't a lot of knowledge about it. And I mean, frankly, we were kind of flying by the seat of our pants too, you know, doing a lot of characterization work, but there were still a lot of surprises back then. Um, so that, that continued to evolve to be a relatively large part of our business. And in 2014, medical modeling was acquired by, um, 3d systems. Um, that same year LayerWise was acquired. Um, LayerWise was a company out of KU Leuven in Belgium that had become pretty well known for their titanium, but they had started as a spin out of the, as out of the university printing, um, fully dense titanium. Um, but they started actually as a service bureau that was only, building machines and software only to build parts, not build machines. So as 2014 came around, medical modeling got acquired in the spring, uh, LayerWise got acquired in the fall. Um, and that's where we started getting into um, the the first, um, the big laser system for 3D systems, which was the Pro X320. Um, you gotta have a Pro X in the name back in the 2014 era, that's right. 3D systems, you must. Um, so then that's how we started getting into laser. Um, that, um, that took me over to Belgium for a couple of years. Um, so, um, working in quality and operations there for, um, for a couple of years, um, the Belgian team was just technically super strong. You know, uh, it was, it was, there's, we always joked that it was an army of PhD. So if I wanted to go get a dissertation at any time in metallurgy, laser physics, anything, you know, uh, I could just go upstairs, uh, and, and, uh, and figure it out. 
Um, so I lived over there for a couple of years and then um, came back to Colorado in 2019, um, sort of in an applications role, um, leading the, the applications group um, for North America. Um, at 3D Was that Systems, all, all, all medical stuff or broad applications? It's, it's really growth. So back in 2000, the layer-wise, um, their first customer was actually ASML. Um, so a semiconductor company, you know, mm-hmm. they're a couple hours from Eindhoven where all that ASML Philips sort of came out of. Um, so, um, that actually the industrial side was big there, um, sort of in the mid 2010s, like 14 to 16 era, um, spinal became huge, um, especially for 3d systems and the, we're known for titanium and really fine detail titanium. So that grew to be larger than the industrial mm-hmm. side. Um, but at the same time, both in Littleton and in Leuven, um, we really started doing more um, collaborative work across industries. So, you know, uh, industrial and healthcare. So our, our key focus really is, has been for quite some time in energy, med device, um, semiconductor capital equipment, aerospace and defense. Um, it's surprising how how many metal am problems you can solve with a a cross-pollinated group like heat exchangers and orthopedic devices have a surprisingly amount of uh of uh technical debt uh embedded within them that is is relatively similar you know you start looking at really small cross sections you start looking at lattices that also looks like a fan of a heat exchanger there's a lot of that so so the group that I've worked in has been collaborative across um, healthcare and industrial solutions. Um, so we have we certainly, from an application perspective, have um, have focus in each of those areas, um, but we we support both. And I think that's it's it's pretty interesting because you get a wide range. You know, in the morning I'll be ca- talking about rockets. Midday I'll talk to semiconductor capital equipment about some lithography process, and then in the evening I'll get a uh, talk about an orthopedic device. It's it's yep. pretty cool. Uh, pretty cool stuff. And so going back all the way kind of to your start, was there a, like, why were you interested in becoming an orthopedic surgeon? Like, was that just something like someone in their family, like the idea of putting people back together after they fell off their bike or what, what, what was it that <laughs> kind of got you kind of walking in that direction at least? Um, it was, it was, wanted i always liked the idea of being a doctor you know you get to like it's super satisfying like viscerally on a day-to-day basis you're helping somebody and i always thought that idea was super cool and then growing up um you know my my stuff was mountain biking biking skiing you know that kind of thing so as i was growing up you know everybody i think by the time i blew my knee out in my early 20s i was probably number 11 on the list of like close friends that had acl reconstructions yep um with the same surgeon i we joked with him that he owed us a commission because we were keeping him alive single-handedly by blowing our knees out in our teens and 20s um but it was really that that on the orthopedic side it uh i was like kind of i'm not handy by any means but i like working with my hands to some degree so i was you know i was paying my way through college doing landscaping and stuff um so it was, it was fun to like work with hands and i thought you know orthopedic surgeons Although surgeon part of it, you know, it's, it's elaborate carpentry. It's, uh, the, it was the first time I went into orthopedic OR, it was, uh, it was a visceral experience. It was actually right before I blew my knee out, which was, and I was at a knee lab, which was great fun. Um, <laughs> but you get in there and it's like, oh, that's all stuff I can get at Home Depot. It's just 
it's just all stainless steel and I can, I can go sterilize it, but like, that's, that's basically a sawzall. That's just a drill, you know, it's a uh, elaborate carpentry. So it, uh, that made it, you know, it, pretty cool. It wasn't like microsurgery and this kind of thing, but pretty quickly I was like, I just want to go to more school. So how else yeah. can I kind of get into this without having to do more school? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I blew my knee out, I think in 2000. So I'm going on yeah. 23 years of having the, the cadaver implant still holding strong all good all right yeah <laughs> i got a, i got my my own hamstring but yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice and so it's go than back. my other one it's crazy how that works huh <laughs> yeah yeah i've had no issues so run a couple of marathons and nothing nothing uh nothing to complain about excellent so tell me about the first time when you were at medical modeling, what, what was it like to see a, a 3d printer? What was going through your mind? So did you see it? Like when you read the job description, like you knew a little bit about it, but like what, when you first saw it in like, was it at the, at the office, at the interview, was that kind of when you first saw your first printer? I mean, it was, it was totally wild. I mean, you kind of, nowadays I see printers and like, Oh yeah, this is just what I, you know, I'll, I'll see a big CNC and that's way cooler nowadays. Um, but <laughs> The first time, you know, I had this image and I think this is probably typical for a lot of people back in that time, you know, you kind of FTM was kind of what you thought or FFF, right? And then this is what you can do, basically hot glue gun, lay it down. And I figured that's what it would be. Um, but we were running primarily SLA. We had one of the early objects and then the R cams. Um, so, I mean, just seeing... I knew photopolymers existed, but like the whole idea of stereolithography was wild to me. Um, you just see green stuff and then out of the goo, like a ter like Terminator, um, you get this, you know, pretty darn high fidelity model out um, relatively quickly. And then the whole concept of EBM just blew my mind. You know, it, it still kind of does. It's kind of, you know, there's, there's some saying that, you know, at some point, anything that feels like magic and, and science, there's, you know, those two things end up being pretty close. Um, but it, it was, it was totally fascinating. And then you start thinking about like, you know, it's, you start thinking about it as another tool in the tool chest, right. Of like, oh, that's a different way of boiling water, but we can get to a different place. But I mean, it was, it was super exciting. It was pure dumb luck that I got into additive manufacturing and 3d printing, like pure, pure dumb luck, but man, I'm glad I did. And do you want to talk a little bit? I mean, I don't think we've talked too much on the podcast about eBeam. Um, do you want to just give like a like a minute primer on kind of what it is compared to to laser technology, yeah. just for folks that may not be familiar with it? Yeah. So we we kind of joke with like laser. We call it photon beam uh, melting instead of uh, electron beam melting. So instead of using you know light energy um, or infrared energy like you would in uh, laser beam. Um, it's, it's emitted, basically it's a cathode ray tube, um, in a vacuum chamber above powder. Um, so similar, similar type of powder, usually a little bit coarser than what would be done in laser. Um, but essentially you, you emit a electron beam, um, through, you know, you energy over a tungsten diode and, um, push it through, um, down to the, the, the powder bed, but it, it's essentially a cathode ray, uh, tube. So similar to like an old TV um operating at a higher background temperature um and, and vacuum now with that came a lot of um complexity from a process standpoint it's probably more of a complex process than um than laser so i actually i really value that now being prime i don't even do anything in e-beam so having 
having that background towards laser, it was, it was kind of nice to just jump right into the deep end. Um, those machines have gotten way better, but anybody that's ran an old S12 or an A1, um, you don't want your machines to have personalities and they all had personalities. Um, so it was a, it was a good way to learn a lot about, uh, everything from, you know, process controls and process engineering to, uh, metallurgy. It's kind of funny. My dad is actually a metallurgical engineer by training. He never did anything with it in his life. So I joke that I'm more of a metallurgical engineer than he is. <laughs> um, but that was mostly learned at cocktail napkins at airport bars from uh, a dear friend, Ryan Kircher. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Another guest of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so with kind of talk more about your time at, at medical modeling and maybe some of the the products and and use cases so you you mentioned kind of the modeling aspect of 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 medical like a, of medical 3d printed parts do you want to just talk a little bit at a high level for that and then um i can't remember in as you were going through your your background were you also like kind of getting into the implant side as well and at that point yeah absolutely so came on and you know medical modeling really the the focus of medical modeling started as um dicom images so ct and mr data segmenting those so basically putting those slices back together to create a three-dimensional model um that at the t back in the day was printed primarily in sla um so anatomical models is its own thing right um used for like complex oncology cases complex deformities um so like there was a lot of conjoined twins, trauma, oncology, and otherwise. That sort of moved into um, this whole surgical planning workflow that you know is a big part about what medical modeling and now 3D systems is about. Um, so personalized healthcare solutions. Um, so it really started off in sort of the craniomaxiofacial space, actually maxiofacial to start with. So planning, there's a whole slot of surgeries to realign bites. Um, so side bite, overbite, underbite, um, orthognathic surgery is what it's called. Um, and there's basically the state of that art, um, back in 2008 or so, um, was, you know, non-surgical planning and towards by 2012 to 2014, almost all of them are, are planned. And nowadays it's, it's just normal that all of them are planned. So what that looks like is actually, you know, taking a CT of the jaw, aligning the teeth. So either through an intraoral scan or a um, physical impression um, to basically plan the, the carpentry of the mouth. So cut here, don't cut there, move this left, move this right um, to get good alignment um, post-surgery. That's moved into this huge, broad, personalized healthcare solution. Um, everything from, you know, cranial to orthopedic, long bone joints and otherwise. Um, basically, you know, the, the idea being to reduce risk, um, in time in OR, um, to get better patient outcomes. So it's still, um, most typically, um, a personalized instrument to fit an off the shelf implant, but it's moving more and more to a personalized instrument to actually a personalized implant. The regulatory side of that gets a little spicy, but is, is still, um, I think that's where the future will hold. Um, then the the parallel path to that back in the day um, was was e beam um, working on orthopedic implants. Now back in this time, 
you couldn't actually we weren't modeling lattice structures back in like 2010 and before you kind of had to have this like broken hatch of a process to make your process create a porous structure it was pretty wild nowadays you know like i can get into 3d expert and in seconds create an basically infinite amount of lattice structures everything from like a gyroid to a stochastic to some ordered structures but back then um you had to kind of break the process to to do that and porous metal had been around for a long time in the orthopedic industry but it had been done through either like sintered beads um, or porous plasma spray um and there was clinically a, a kind of a, a sweet spot on where that the size and morphology of that por porosity allows for osteoblast adhesion and then ultimately osseo integration so bone cells to grow onto and into um the the device itself um so really the the value proposition was to be able to do that monolithically so to build solid lattice kind of in one um rather than having a low yield subsequent process that um means you you have to hold more inventory in your balance sheet but also yeah um isn't ideal if there's you know you, you get worried about the adhesion and the the interface and all that and in this case you know if you build it just as one um a lot of those concerns go away so it really started in revision hips so revision surgeries for hips um that they didn't have a lot of room to cement um but then really spine became huge um because spine is one of these places where um you it's not personalized but it's quasi personalized in the sense that as you get into the am part of spine um there's there's really limited tooling that you have to have to produce the part you know from if you think about the the laser machine it's the foundry in a box to a degree um you can create every lordosis so every angle every footprint every xyz kind of dimension that you want you know it, it's cliche to say but design is you know design is free and additive and it, it really became true in that sense and that co, co along with that at that time there was a big push away from peak implants um because they had fibroblast integration so you get a fibrous sort of encapsulation around the implant um towards titanium where you get this nice bony ingrowth so spine really just exploded um orthopedic certain applications of orthopedic are coming um and and there's actually you know very large swaths of orthopedic that are primarily printed like a tibial tray and things like this um but as the as the technology becomes more and more productive and you can get really really high quality results at a pace that is uh, um on par or better than like a casting or a forging it becomes super interesting because you don't have those subsequent post processes so from an oem standpoint all you know supply chain risk has been what the talk of the day since you know february 2020 um it, it really reduces the supply chain risk because you, mm. you you're not building on demand but you're not having to build out eight months at a time because you have this huge batch process at the end that you got to manage interesting i didn't realize I, that's a, a good point i didn't like for the conventional implants you have to think you're building it and then on a projection right like we did x amount of implants last year we're going to make x plus 25 percent because we think our business is going to grow and then you just wait for them to be used right? yeah and it, 
And if you have an eight month lead time, that's a, that's a spicy little calculation. If you don't get it right, you're going to either end up that your surgeons aren't going to have what they need, or uh, you're holding the bag on a bunch of inventory. Um, and the, the finance guys are breathing down your throat on how you're going to move it. Cause they don't want all that on your balance sheet. So, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, just what you've observed from the other end of it, like the, I'm always curious to to understand, like from a, like from a patient perspective, like you go into the, your doctor's office, if you have maybe facial realignment or whatever it may be, you talk to a doctor, you get some scans, what's happening in the background? Like, like, are there uh, at like doctor's offices and hospitals, are there people doing these segmentations and printing stuff? Are they just working with like, Hey, like we're going to work with 3d systems or a customer of 3d systems to get this done. Like what's the business behind like this stuff? Like how are people like, how is this being executed from, um, from, from that standpoint? It's a really good question and um, it's evolving. Um, So, you know, I think, at, at the beginning, it was primarily working with, you know, shops like medical modeling and then 3D systems, of course. Um, Materialize was doing some of this. There's MedCAD and a few others that were doing it on a smaller scale as well. Um, so kind of outsourcing that work um, to that kind of shop. So the, the surgeon and the rep will get on a call with an engineer and designer. Basically, it'll plan it out and ultimately the clinician is responsible for the plan so they got to give it you know sign of approval um and then move it forward um more and more now we're seeing more point of care usage so like veterans affairs va hospital mayo um, hospital for special surgery a lot of these ones are doing the work uh themselves so bringing it on and this this brings a whole nother complexity to the the regulatory side because then how do you regulate is the 3D printer the medical device? Is it just the software? Is it part? Is mm-hmm. the material the medical device? So there's a lot of work going on there. Um, I think as a as a patient, you don't see a lot of it. It's it's kind yeah. of interesting, you know. Like when I got my knee done, I had just gone to my first yeah the knee cadaver lab, and I asked them what kind of gear they put in, and they they you know the physician's assistant at first kind of freaked out, and they're like, "What? Why do you want to know?" Because they think they're you're going to sue them for uh something right some sort of you know something um but usually on the on the patient side it's kind of crazy because that's a it's a big deal right if you're getting that kind of surgery but usually you don't know what kind of hardware you're getting you don't know what's going on in the background it's just it's happening um so it's it's kind of been fun and you know as as relatives and otherwise you know you get a full knee or you get something and you ask them what kind of hardware they got nobody knows and then you ask and they have to document it. People know, but yeah. it's uh it's not a usual, usual question yet. And so, um, but it should improve like the, the patient outcome, right? Like less time in the OR. If you get more, if you get better alignments, you don't have to go in for revision, better healing, so on and so forth. And how did your background and quality kind of help throughout this process? I mean, it, it like, you talk about medical implants, it's just like aerospace, right? Like everything needs a quality system. Yeah. You have traceability. You need to know where that powder came from, who made it, where they get the raw material from, like all that stuff has to be documented somewhere. So maybe ha- yeah. like, talk a little bit about that perspective. How's that helped? And, and what do you see as like some of the challenges there kind of as the, the industry evolves? Yeah. 
um it, it's it's interesting because yeah i mean for the last like five or six years actually more of my life has been on the industrial side so working in different quality systems so it's a different level you know different jargon that you need to learn um but i think having that you know that that understanding of validation qualification certification right like depending on the industry you're going to call it something different but it's all based on really solid quality engineering to a large degree in process engineering. So, you know, defining your process, understanding what your inputs and outputs are from there, what are your uh, effective ranges? You know, what, what can you allow for? How can you control this? Usually following some level of risk-based approach, whether it's an FMEA or fault tree analysis or something, right? To sort of help understand, okay, this is my process. These are my risks. These are my failure modes. How do I mitigate these things? How do I work these things through? Um, and then ultimately getting towards either, you know, like different types of qualification, whether it's process, product, equipment, um, and in different industries, you kind of look at it differently, you know, like the rocket guys, they're not going to do a ton of process qualification because you're talking N equals tens maybe of a single part, right? It's not like an implant where I'm going to produce tens of thousands of them. Um, so that validation process looks different and we, we're going to skew more towards the verification side, right? We're going to do FAIs, we're going to do all that, but all that front end work is still mega important, right? Um, so that we understand process and all that. Um, I think it's, it's been hugely valuable, um, you know, having, having that, that background and the, that mindset, um, you know, the, an example I'll use um, as, we, as we've looked at helping customers um, achieve some FAA qualifications, um, where um, from a software perspective, as we look at like a digital data package and the pedigree within that, um, where FAAs landed on it and where, you know, we, we accidentally landed on it, frankly, um, ends up being super similar. But a lot of that comes from the pedigree of having deep process knowledge and frankly, the you know running own machines in a in a production environment um it comes from the layer wise days you know Jonas, one of the founders of the company he lived up near antwerp the shop was down near brussels it's a really long not a really long ways away but it, with traffic can be a really long ways away <laughs> and you wanted to start builds in the middle of the night and you know you gotta to get your builds prepped you got your uh, machine operators prepping your builds and then we just want to press play on whichever machine we want the only way to do that's with a maintenance and calibration program that allows for that. And then having a file type that's going to control and not have a universal offset or a global offset per machine. Right. That's where we landed with the file type, but it's, it's not because we knew 10 years from now that that's what FAA was going to demand from a call perspective. Um, but it all comes together quite nicely. And then, you know, if it's a matter of having that deep process knowledge and, and that 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 workflow knowledge and that understanding and just learning the the new definitions and the new TLAs, um, that's that's helpful. And then yeah, that cross pollination, you end up finding so much similarities between these things. You know, for sure. Ultimately, the process is the same. Yeah, and then you don't even th- like. There's also the added wrinkle of post processing, right? Like you throw it in a oh, totally. and and then okay like does your process even matter at that point right <laughs> yeah <laughs> so. the writer of all sins uh yeah. <laughs> um so along that line with with your kind of role as applications um kind of development and support for for 3d systems customers like what um 
if you're in a kind of customer shoes, like what are the types of, of things that you should be asking about or, or thinking about as you kind of build in additive within organizations? Like, are, are you mostly dealing with companies that are new to it or like trying to like push the boundaries, buy a machine or like where, where are you kind of seeing most of your, your support and, and time these days? I think it's, it's, it's also evolving. I think more and more um, we're, we're seeing, you know, additive embedded within companies. So less of the, like my boss told me to look into it uh, mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I have this piece of sheet metal that can you print for me? Sure. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's more of, you know, solving complex problems. The way that we've looked at it um, is, is kind of on two axes, both as, as organizations mature within their additive journey, you know, you have some that are, it's deeply embedded in everything they do. Um, and they're designers, they're, procurement people, their accountants all know what AM is and what it does for their business. You also have ones that are just getting into it, right? And then you also have the same on an application level. So you have application maturity that, that kind of goes through feasibility, development, validation, um, and then ultimately scale. Um, and there's those applications are, you know, as we look at application space, like combustors, turbo machinery, pretty mature applications within the space, orthopedic implants, pretty mature applications, some greenfield blue ocean types of things that are, are going to be less mature and then, you know, need to be figured out always with like, you mentioned it, Mike, but like the, the post-processing in mind, right? Everybody talks about DFAM. DFAM's cool, but it's ultimately just DFM, right? Like you still got to be able to figure out how you're going to hold it, how you're going to fix it, how you're going to cut it, how you're going to inspect it um, and all the rest. So I think the the biggest thing that um, that we try to do um, is is kind of start with why, and then from there understand what we're trying to accomplish. Um, you know, with additive, it's a, sometimes it can be a longer and more expensive process. So there's almost always it, it's going to distill to some performance improvement, right? And that's goes for an orthopedic device, and it goes for a volute and uh, volute on a turbo machinery. Um, component, right? It's There's other ways to do it that probably are more cost effective. How are we going to get that performance improvement so that we can, you know, is it consolidating pieces? Is it supply chain improvement? You know, what can that be? Um, and deeply understand that why. We don't want to be a hammer looking for nails. Um, we want to be, you know, have a broad set of tools and help understand um, the why. And then if the what and the how um, follows and it's something that we can do great but a lot of times frankly our conversations are this is a cool problem but we can't help you uh right now like you're gonna want to look at something else but that you know building that trust and building that understanding and just having that candor and honest feedback is is super important within the industry like 3d printing additives never gonna displace CNC machining, right? And again, it's it's kind of cliche to say that, but it's just another tool in the toolbox. You know, it's not it's not this big uh scary black box that's gonna take everything else over. It's uh it's complementary to everything else that's already in the toolbox. And I always like asking people this like what's your typical day look like? Kind of oh man, I uh, I joked that I'm a pro- I'm a professional talker nowadays. Um, <laughs> so I I professionally talk. So um, you know, most of my day is is talking to customers, <laughs> um, both proactively and reactively. Um, and you know, um, talking to customers, hearing what's out there, helping them, you know, 
um, understand it, working with our application engineering team to kind of um, help uh, evolve that solution. So usually, you know, I'm going to spend like 60 to 80% of my day on calls, um, just, just talking to folks. Um, and then the rest of the time, I always like to have a, a couple hours or an hour a day, at least just to like think and then distill that information and how do we, how do we as a, as a business, um, both within my little ecosystem of what we're doing here in Colorado, but as a broader 3d systems, and even as a broader, you know, industry as a whole, um, what are the things that we need to do to kind of move that forward? Um, and, you know, help kind of push that out to both front end R and D our process team, our applications team, and, and ultimately help customers, you know, solve hard problems. We get the chance to work on some really cool stuff. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's fun. Those hard problems are the best ones. And speaking of that, kind of what, what in your mind is most exciting about the industry today? Um, I think as, as, as things are continuing to mature, machines are having less and less personality. Um, so that, that with that, uh, that machine to machine variability reducing and the overall per piece costs also reducing, you know, we're getting into some things that wouldn't have been possible years ago. So, I mean, I'm really excited for um, how additive can help with a lot of this onshoring stuff with semiconductor. Um, the, the space stuff is just, I mean, to the point that like, it's just additive, like you just, it's just what it is. It's there. Um, so that's just rad. I mean, we, uh, we joke that, you know, we're rock, we make a lot of rocket surgeon jokes around here, okay. um, because of the, the healthcare added in, uh, aerospace side. And then on the med device side, I mean, I want to see, I want to see a lot of these castings and forgings that are typically produced, you know, I'm super, super excited to see if we can't do what in, in primary large joint, what we've done in spine, um, and, and really completely change that market. So. Awesome. So last question, kind of a more of a fun one. Um, what's a, a book that's made an impact on on you or your career over the last few years? Um, there's a couple. Um, there's a book by Marty Kagan called Inspired. It's primarily on software product management, but it's uh, it's really, really, really pointedly cool on how to develop the right product um, for your market. Um, so Inspired was a good one. Um, there's a book called Radical Candor um, about kind of management and how to build a culture of candor um, without being a a-hole. Um, and, and, and that has been super helpful on how I can help my team kind of develop in their career. Um, those are the two that I probably mentioned the most. Um, awesome. Cool. And where can Grit. we... Uh... Grit's another good one. Grit's oh, yeah? another good one. Yeah? Yeah. Nice. And where can we see you? Are you going to be at any upcoming trade shows, AMUG, Rapid, or yeah, else this year? I think I'll, I'll do the usual circuit. I'll be at AMUG probably Monday through Wednesday. Um, my uh, I got two young kids at home, so trying to to be a, a little more uh, reasonable on that. So I'll be AMUG a few days on my day AOS. Um, I'll be at Rapid. Um and then some other more esoteric shows during the summer, some turbo machinery stuff and and whatnot. So, fantastic. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining the show. Um, good to catch up. We'll see you uh, around the industry at the trade shows coming up, and uh, we'll talk soon. Excellent. Thanks for having me, Mike. See you around. <laughs>